Hello listeners, welcome to the Web Chatham Report, episode 98. getting close to episode 100 that's gonna be crazy maybe I'll have some sort of party <laughs> by myself in my studio I got a pitch from a press person the other day saying I should have a guest on I thought that was pretty funny uh, I was like I've never had a guest I keep thinking uh, when I started it I thought I was gonna have guests maybe I should completely change the whole thing or have guests once every 100 episodes that could be fun my friend Og has an awesome podcast. He just asks people he admires to be on it, and they say yes. It's really kind of amazing. I should have done that. <laughs> oh, well. Anyway, uh, hello. Welcome. Uh, I Google. Oh, yeah, there it is. It is now day 521 of my pandemic life. It's a good time. Everything is the same. I don't think anything's changed since I last talked to you. I would, however, like to apologize. I feel like my last edition of the Web Chatter Report was lacking in some way. It wasn't very good, you know, and uh, part of me, I chalk it up to the fact that I did it during the workday, which is, you know, a big no-no. And my wife was in her office outside of my door, and I I got, like, self-conscious, which is really weird, but I do that. I don't like people to listen to me when I record. It was a huge problem when I was in a band. I did not like people in the control room. I don't know. It freaked me out. And, you know, if I'm being honest, that's happening again today, but I'm consciously trying to get over it and give you guys a, oh, ow, oh, yeah, I'm getting old. Uh, give you guys a rock solid Web Chatham report <laughs> this mid-August fine summer day here in Chatham County. It's been lovely. We did finally get a day of nice downpours. It was awesome, but by and large, it has been in the 90s and in the 80% humidity and sunny and thick southern air, not a lot of breeze, <laughs> go outside and take our walk and we just get drenched in sweat. It's, it's oppressive. Uh, every week I look at the weather and it says it'll break by in the next four or five days, it'll break and be in the 70s and 80s. And then I look four or five days later and they're like, we lied. It'll be another week. I don't know if it's ever going to break. <laughs> But, you know, I kind of like it, like, uh, when I moved to Boston from Alaska in the first summer I spent there, I think it was 19, maybe 20, it was so hot and so humid, and it was so disgusting. And all those years in Boston and New York, humidity is so much more gross in cities. Heat is so much more gross in cities. Subways, air-conditioned office buildings, you leave your house. You go out of, if you, if you have air conditioning, you leave it and you're outside and it's gross and hot. If you don't, you go outside and you're used to it. But whatever it is, you go down into the subway, which is this oppressive mixture of stifling heat on the platforms and then air conditioning in the cars that instantly causes you to drench. Then you get out of the subway and you're so wet and you go back into the heat of the platform, then the heat of the streets, and then you go into the office building and then you get stiflingly cold and wet again. Then you go up the elevator and you go to your office and you're just drenched. And I used to have to go to the bathroom immediately and like wipe my whole body down or sometimes I bring an extra shirt and it's just so gross. 
And now here it's like, yeah, it's gross outside, but you know what? I'm just going to go home and change. <laughs> it doesn't matter. I change my shirt like three times a day, but who cares? You know, like every time I go outside, I change. Um, it's just better. And you know, all the woods and the trees and the, the greenery that really helps with the, the, the summer heat. But man, I ain't going to lie. It is intense out there. Uh, yeah. What else? COVID's come back here. Uh, I wrote a really long, uh, post about COVID in my daily email this week. It's pretty intense. Um, you know, we all have to make our own decisions, but, uh, you know, I've got a lot of privilege. I've got this lovely big house on this big lot in a secluded neighborhood in the woods. My daughter is the exact perfect age for COVID. I mean, I can't stress how luckily lucky we've been. She, you know, she was starting to make friends right before COVID, but not really. And she doesn't remember so she doesn't sit there and pine for her friends like older kids do. She was never in school, so she doesn't know what she's missing. She, you know, she's happy. She's unaware that there's anything going on. She gets a little bored and wants to do some different stuff. I made a tactical error right before Delta started coming back. I started bringing her with me once a week out of the house to the grocery store and pizza place on Fridays. And then I stopped doing that because of COVID, because of Delta. And, you know, I was a little worried, but she didn't seem to even care or notice. She was so into it for like, and she was wearing her mask and she was saying hi to people. And she's like, it's so fun to be in the grocery store. And I felt really bad, but I, we're not doing that anymore. She is, we are back into lockdown here because we can be, we both work from home. We have additional help from watching our child with our mother-in-law and my, my mother-in-law on the property. Uh, it's fine. You know, I mean, I'm definitely sick of it, but I feel like I can make it to November. I, I, I'm trusting the news that's out there that there will be a vaccine for kids by November, uh, for kids Jane's age. And I can make it that long, you know? And like, yeah, you know, if I there's some family emergency in Alaska and I was like, last chance I was ever going to have to see my sister or mother, I would get on a plane and I would leave, you know? Uh, if there was some real thing that an emergency, real reason to leave the house, travel, whatever, I would do it, you know? But there's not. And it's very different. Like, you know, we don't know for sure if people can pass the disease when they're vaccinated we know they can get it now again and we, we're pretty sure they can pass it and we know kids can get it and they're not very likely to die but they you know like uh, i did all the math and like the hospitalization rate of kids with covid is higher than the hospitalization rate of kids with the flu so it's not nothing you know and people are like oh more kids you know they're more likely to die in a car crash and i'm like that's true but they're actually not more likely to be injured in a car crash so yeah, I don't know. You know, I mean, if like nothing was changing ever, I would accept this is the new reality, but it's not the new reality. I got three months and my kid can get a vaccine. So I'm just going to make it another three months. I'm hunkered down again and I will deal with it. I miss my friends so much, but uh, unless, you know, people, <laughs> I was just reading a one of my Slack groups and somebody's like, I bet this burns out by September is burning out pretty quick in UK. Great. If that happens, great. I got a ticket for late September to New York. I'll go, but I'm pretty skeptical at this point. So we shall see. We shall see. Haven't heard from the doctor. I got to keep me. Oh God. That's one of the things I got to here. You know what? I'm just going to write it down right now. I have been waiting for him to tell me his interpretation of that blood test. I took to see if I can get on semiglutide email doctor just add that to my list here uh but i haven't heard from him so not a lot to report there um 
definitely uh, the injection I got on my finger, that's a lot better. My finger's better. I have low-level arthritis in all my hands now. That's just part of getting old, I think. But that one finger that was a really bad trigger finger and everything, the injection seems to have done some work. So that's good. Feeling pretty healthy. Summer out. Jane's doing well. She, you know, she's mostly better with her tantrums. She's reading a lot. Uh, I read her. I picked, we picked a book off the shelf the other day that was ages six to eight that she had never read before. And she just read the whole book. That was really weird. A little reading prodigy. I'm very impressed. And she's starting to draw. I mean, she's been coloring for hours a day for months and months and months, but now she's drawing her own pictures. She's drawing little animals and little humans and suns, and they're so cute. They're so cute. I love her little drawings. She's doing well. Oh, I still like getting up every morning and writing my post, and I, I like and I finish my post, and then I'm like, I'm gonna go see my daughter, and it's just so nice. I go up there and pick her up out of bed, and we have our breakfast, and oh yeah, cool. I'm sure my citizens bank login is yeah, I get a lot of SMS spam these days. <laughs> I don't have a citizens bank account. Uh, but yeah, you know, I'm really enjoying my daughter these days. We're chatting a lot. She hasn't gotten to the Y phase, but you can tell it's like the next thing that's about to happen. Um, right now it's about kind. Emma read her a book about kindness and now she just asks if everything's kind. And it's really nice. This morning she was like, is spilling kind? And you know, we're like, well, spilling is an accident. Accidents don't matter either way, but it's what we do after them that matters. Cleaning it up is kind. Not cleaning it up, leaving your mess there is not kind. She's like, not kind to leave your mess. And we're like, yep, that's right. You got it. So, you know, that's pretty pleasant. I, yeah, honestly, I really enjoy her. Uh, yeah. And we have a friend coming over in, geez, I don't know, like 20 minutes. Um, yeah, that'll be kind of fun outdoors. We'll see if that happens. We might not do this in two hours today. <laughs> I'm so distracted. Okay, focus. Yeah, anyway, Jane's doing great. Work's going well. Uh, we got a little bit of a revenue rebound happening as the world works through the Apple app transparency tracking situation, the uh, privacy stuff that you may have been hearing about on such podcasts as the Web Chatham Report for the last year of my life. Uh, we have been finally sort of asking people if they want to opt in or out and um, because we just assumed everybody said no. So we kind of just sucked it up and had the lowest revenue we could for a long time. And now we're starting to ask people, so it can only go up because right now we're assuming everybody says no. So if some percentage says yes, our revenue is getting better. So it's been getting a little bit better lately. That's been good. Um, yeah, work's been good. It's been good. We are functioning well as a team, as a unit, as a company. Uh, Friday, this Friday is a recharge day. We've been doing those once a month, just giving the whole company Friday off. That's been very, very fun. I kind of want to just sneak up and keep doing more and more until suddenly we're just all working four days a week. That would be lovely. <laughs> I really want to work four days a week. I think I could do that for my whole life. But uh, yeah, and then, you know, uh, in the rest of the tech world, the big thing this week was the Apple uh, chain uh, child security initiatives they've been doing. They're all a lot of, a lot of controversy about these. Um they are basically going to scan all the photos on your phone for kitty porn. So I wrote a long essay about this, and there's a lot of confusion out there, but uh, I got it all right. I feel good about that. <laughs> 
Um, I, mainly because I have some experience with this, right? There's a database of child pornography that the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children maintain, and many, many social media platforms and cloud storage companies scan the images in their possession against this database. We did this at Tumblr, right? So, like, any image you posted to Tumblr, we made sure it wasn't kiddie porn. And uh, obviously, I'm in full support of that. That is a very good thing. Uh, I ran the team that handled that for a while. That was a very intense part of my job. I only had it very briefly. Thankfully, I'm not cut out for that line of work. It's very, very intense and traumatizing. But uh, Apple's doing it a little bit differently. And, you know, there's kind of a, a reason for it, right? There's, uh, there's iCloud, which is their version of Dropbox, is a storage service online in the cloud that Apple gives to or sells to iPhone users. But your iCloud backups are encrypted. So if you upload a photo to iCloud, it's encrypted, and therefore they couldn't scan it. Now, this is true of Dropbox and anybody else, right? Dropbox is just a drive, right? Like, I could put up a photo unencrypted, in which case they could scan that photo against the database, or I could put a zip file that's encrypted up there, in which case they couldn't scan it. They, then they just don't. Um, but Apple decided that they that's not good enough for them for a few reasons. One, they don't want to break the encryption and scan your photos because then there's a backdoor into the encryption. That's no good. They want the encryption to be rock solid. That is noble. But two, they also want to scan even though they... Nobody else does that. Nobody else scans encrypted files in their storage, but Apple wants to, so they're going to do it on the phone. Which could make sense, but it is definitely a big step, and it's a little bit weird. Um, I read all the technical documents, and they are frustratingly unclear about when the scan happens. So they say before a photo is uploaded to iCloud, it is scanned. And, you know, to be clear, there's a lot of cool technology around the scan. They're not scanning the... People are trying to say that they're not scanning the photos. So they're scanning the photos. They scan the photo and they make what's called a hash out of the scan of the photo, essentially an algorithmic number, let's say, from the bits and data in the photo. They compare that hash against the hash of the photos in the database, right? But of course, they have to scan the photo and process every bit in the photo to make the hash. So they're scanning all the photos. And then they say, we're scanning them before we put them up to iCloud. They don't say, as part of the upload process and only part of the upload process, we scan the photo right before we upload it which would imply that photos that are not destined for iCloud are not scanned. It doesn't say that. And then they say, if you disable iCloud, we are unable to match photos against the database. Of course, a match is two parts. They scan the photo and make the hash, and then they compare the hash to the photos online. It is conceivable and technically possible, and from everything they're saying, possible in their system, that they're scanning all your photos, regardless of whether or not you have iCloud enabled and they are only matching those photos if you have iCloud enabled. They don't say one way or the other. Obviously, to me, that's a huge difference. You cannot opt out if they're scanning all your photos. If you can opt out by having iCloud turned off, I guess maybe I could accept it. It's just a, you know, it's a circumstance of iCloud, take it or leave it, just like Tumblr or Facebook or Dropbox or anyone else. But they're not telling you one way or the other. Daring Fireball wrote an article that said that this, my, my description of events is not happening, but he did not say how he knows that. Like, did people inside the company tell him? And if so, why aren't they quoting themselves? Or is he misinterpreting the same technical documents that I've read? Unknown. Uh, so there's an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal from Alex Damos today, former head of security at Facebook and a couple other privacy people saying that this is deeply problematic and basically making the same arguments I did. So thank you very much. I'm glad to know I'm not completely paranoid. Um, 
And then, of course, you know, there's the slippery slope arguments. A lot of people poo-poo the slippery slope arguments because, you know, kitty porn is a very real problem and it's horrific and it's awful. And, you know, I mean, this, this, this database works. It catches people all the time, you know. But I think that doesn't make the slippery slope arguments not real. Um, and they're also saying they're only launching it in the U.S. because obviously people are mostly concerned about repressive regimes in China and things like that. But there's nothing to say that they won't launch it in China later, and there's nothing to say that China won't force them to launch it later. The thing about the hashes in a database is the technology of hashes, scanning your whole, all your photos, making hashes of them, and comparing them to a database is in no way confined to child pornography, right? Like, it's completely conceivable that China, for example, would say, well, add this hash to your database. Apple may not even know what the actual image is. And it could just be like a Hong Kong independence logo or something, right? A photo of Tiananmen Square. Like, I find it inconceivable to think that Apple would resist China's pressures in this way. But then I realized that Apple's already completely compromised in China. They already have all their Chinese data on Chinese data centers that is run by the Chinese government. So... <laughs> So the slippery slope argument is true, but it's also not the archetypical case of China is a red herring because China's already completely co-opted the Apple ecosystem. And then you think of all the other countries out there. And, and you know, I think smaller, more oppress oppressive regimes that do not have China's geopolitical power, say Russia, Iran, places like that. Apple, I assume, would just say no to because they don't care about that market as much. So maybe the slippery slope argument doesn't work. And maybe if they're only scanning photos when you have iCloud enabled at the time of upload, two things they do not explicitly say, then maybe I can deal with this whole thing. I don't know. But that was pretty frustrating. And I'm just completely shocked how poorly Apple rolled it out and how much they bungled the announcement. I'm sure there are a lot of well-intentioned people at Apple, very talented, and the solution itself seems actually very clever. They, they, When they launched it, they had technical reviews from three outside academics. They're all cryptographers. There's no privacy academics. And none of them addressed this issue that I'm talking about here. They all just talked about the hash comparison system, which is pretty clever, but nobody talked about the scanning your whole, your whole phone part. They just didn't have any privacy researchers vouch for the whole system. So that is also hugely concerning. <laughs> kind of awesome. Anyway, what's, uh, what else is going on? I didn't mean to talk about that for 10 minutes. <laughs> it's been on my mind a lot this week. Uh, projects. Uh, let's see. Oh yeah. So I rewatched the video I made, the Day in the Life video I made like four months ago. I know I talked a lot about it on here, and then I just sort of forgot about it. And I watched it recently, and it's really good. I don't like it because my hair is really bad, and I look severely overweight because I probably am. But uh, otherwise, it's a very good video, and I think I'll be very happy I have it in the future. Uh, I kind of want to show it to people, but I just look so bad. But it's really cool. And part of me is thinking I should make it again, although because my hair's a lot better. It's longer, so it looks less weird. It was at a very weird interim length. Um, I haven't lost any weight, so I'll still look kind of terrible. Maybe I could dress better. I don't know. I don't know. I might make one more, but it's so much work. It was so much work. But I'm glad it exists, and I'm glad that it worked out. Gardening's going well. Uh, I got my hoop house, and it's just amazing. It's really, really transformed things. I am through the dark part of summer where all my stuff was getting eaten by the deer. Everything's protected in the hoop house or covered by netting and it's just great my grapes are just growing like gangbusters now uh new cucumbers are growing really well the, the new beans are growing well the old beans that the deer ate everything of have been rebounding the carrots are good the fennel's good 
the the peppers are all have bounced back at a bountiful pepper harvest uh the watermelons are looking good the tomatoes are my biggest failure now they're really the only failure at this point the tomatoes just suck the tomatoes on the porch didn't work uh probably pot size combination of pot size and heat up there and then the squirrels ravaging them even the netting on them now isn't very good the tomatoes in the dirt down here on the ground level are growing great but i there's no way to net them so like the squirrels steal every tomato on them <laughs> but they're growing really well so i have a good plan for next year i'm going to get a taller hoop house they have these eight foot two hoop houses at gardeners.com I'm going to get one of those and grow my tomatoes in there next year and it should be awesome. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm back into gardening. I had, I had some dark days this summer, but, uh, things are looking really well right now. Feeling pretty good about it. Feeling pretty good about it. My loofahs are huge, but they don't have any loofahs on them though. So that's kind of a bit of a bummer. I just all vine, no loofah. It's really weird. And I got a bunch of new seedlings for the fall brassicas, the cauliflower, spinach, uh, broccoli, Spinach is not a brassica. Lettuce, greens and brassicas for the fall. It's all growing in the garage, getting ready to put out here once the heat finally breaks. God, it's so hot. Uh, and then the studio reorg is going great. I think it's uh, the bench workbench came. It's awesome. I put it into my space last week. Uh, I put all my little antique and decorative lamps on it and hooked them up to an outlet. So I switched outlets. So that's really awesome. I made a microphone drawer, which is great. All my microphones were just piled in a bin and I couldn't get to them. It was a big mess. So that looks really great. And then I organized all of my adapters, my, my audio and computer adapters in one of the big drawers in the little like sorter trays. And it's just so amazing. And the whole thing's on wheels. And I put the seven inches on the bottom because the seven inches didn't fit really well in my Cubitech shelving, which is 14 by 14 inches because the boxes were just a little bit too big. I couldn't fit two boxes in there. And so it was one box per these giant shelves and it was just really annoying. So they look great. Uh, the whole thing looks great. I'm very excited about it. I think that my, my original plan was to bring another, like, sort of like, uh, you know, craftsman style toolbox rolling chest into the office. And I think I'm going to do that still, but I think it's going to be much smaller. I used to think it was going to be a big one, like five feet long, four feet long, something like that. But I think we're just going to do a little one, like two and a half feet. And then, uh, but I'm really excited about have all the drawers and then one more work surface. I think that'll be really nice. So, I, but I'm sitting on that as well as a treadmill, but I have vowed that I will not, not exercise this winter because that killed me and I'm never going to do it again. So I need to get a treadmill in here for the winter. Uh, but I don't want to spend money on those yet and I'm still thinking about it, but I like where things are at now. My MIDI controller, my, my logic and my computer stopped working for a while. And I got all that fixed again. So that's pretty exciting. Uh, I can play music on my computer again. Uh, and I've been starting to making the initial steps of making a new defective frequency record. I'm not very far along, uh, and it will be a really long time. I think my plan is I'm going to try and write a song almost every day, just the little basics of medley, bass, chord progressions, until I have like 30 of them, and then I'll pick from those and work on them. I feel like the hard part for me is getting started, and then once I have songs to work with, I tend to do very well. So I'm just going to focus on getting a lot of songs down, and then from there I will worry about other stuff. But yeah, I don't know. Everything's, everything's uh, optimally functional now which is nice. It's very nice. Uh, except I have a weird Mac bug about spotlight peaking my all 24, 36 processors, whatever many fucking processors I have in this thing. This monster of a machine. 28. 
all 28 processors just peg and it, I look over at activity monitor and it's just spotlight and you can't turn it off. You can force quit it and restart it and that's fine. So I don't know, I'm kind of debating reinstalling the OS this weekend before I do too much music stuff, but I don't know, maybe that's just a waste of time. I can't find anybody else that's having this problem though. So it's a bit of a dilemma. I'm not sure if it's an 11.14 or 11.4 bug or what. Yeah. Anyway, that's going well uh, on the writing front. Uh, the daily newsletter, of course, still proving very rewarding. Fewer comments on Facebook of late, but I don't think I mind. I enjoy it. I'm getting more in the emails. People are writing me directly and helping me stay in touch with people. Uh, it's really satisfying. And then the book version is happening. Uh, I know I mentioned this to you, but my friend Lisa Carver, a wonderful writer and artist, is doing the edit on the book and it's a very hardcore edit because it needs to be cut by about 30, 40% to fit into a book at all. <laughs> this is the power broker of <laughs> pandemic memoirs. Uh, so she's doing a relentless cut. And so I really needed someone who's like, I trusted their like artistry, you know what I mean? And someone who I admire as a memoirist and as a writer and I, I, I love Lisa's writing. So I was very happy and honored that she would take this project. And so she's been, working on it, sending me sort of sections that she's cut stuff. And I told her I trusted her cut. So she's just going to cut and get this down to book length. Uh, it's going to start at the beginning of the pandemic and it's going to go through the Alaska trip and my dad's funeral. Anything after that, uh, this might be <laughs> pandemic book two, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. We will see. But uh, it's happening. So I'm very, very excited about that. If you ever want a copy, maybe end of year, I think I might have it ready to go. Uh that, yeah, but yeah, I'm excited about that. And I don't know what's been happening with the Trek book. He asked to have uh, all the files sent to him, and I sent him all the files I haven't heard from him since, so maybe I scared him off. I don't know. But uh, yeah, let's go. that's what's going on with that. But you know, stuff's happening. I feel productive. I, I don't think I had a serious bout of depression in the last two weeks. I've generally been okay. Uh, you know, the climate report has stressed me out. The, the Delta variant stresses me out. Uh, I still keep up on the January 6th commission and all the crazy ass shit that's coming out about what Trump was doing about his final days in office. Um, yeah, but you know, by and large, I, I'm keeping it together. I, I am holding that information inside and processing it and not letting it affect me too badly. Uh, I am perhaps relying too much heavily on this. I can make it to November thing. I've read a couple rumblings that they might not let the vaccine happen for three and four year olds until January. So that would bum me out. That'd be another three months, but I'm not going to think about that right now, man. November, just one season at a time, man. Yeah. Plus fall gardening is going to be awesome. Anyway, media projects. Uh, added some stuff up to Plex. Uh, I added Breaking the Waves. I think it was up there already, but I added all the extras, and they're actually really good, and it's a good for, uh, not 4K, but HD version of that movie. Uh, I haven't rewatched it, but when I was ripping it and tagging everything, I was like, oh my God, I kind of need to rewatch this movie. It's so crazy. Um, Lars von Trier kind of got weird for a while, and you know, everybody much more went gaga for his film after Breaking the Waves, which was that one with Bjork. I can't remember what it's called anymore, but it's basically a similar movie, but with Bjork. Wow, what was that movie called? Let's look it up. Oh, right, Dancer in the Dark. And, of course, you know, Lars von Trier turned out to be kind of a horrible person, and Bjork talked about their harassment of him and things by him and things like that. So, I don't know, but I really do think Breaking the Waves is a beautiful, perfect film, and... I want to do an extra copy or a copy. I might watch the extras. I don't know. We shall see. 
long ago I watched a documentary by Lars von Trier. Maybe it was by Thomas Vinterberg, but it was about the making of The Idiots, the von Trier film, and he seemed like a monster. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, yeah. Hmm. <laughs> I'm debating whether I go off on a long, long tangent about Dogma 95 and Lars von Trier and Thomas Vinterberg, but I think we'll pass. I think we'll pass. Those who know, know. Those who don't, yeah, you don't need to know about it right now. Uh, and then I put up three movies that I watched, so I'll talk about them in a little bit, but they are up in Plex if you want them. Industrial Accident, the story of Wax Tracks Records, Respectable, the Mary Millington story, and Dig. So those are up there as well, but we're going to talk about them later in the film section. Uh, music. Discogs sold five CDs. I sold the Boo Radleys, Boo Forever. Love that band. Good shoegaze rock band. Uh, met Martin Carr once at South by Southwest. I feel like I said this somewhere. Maybe it was in my daily posts. I don't know. At uh, Club DeVille while watching American Analogs. Maybe I said that to you guys last week. Maybe that's a repeat. I don't know. Um, Animal House, ready to receive. Animal House was the band that Mark Gardner and Lawrence Colbert were in after Ride. The first time around, before Ride reunited. Uh, the Jesus and Mary Chain reverence single. I didn't know I had that. That reverence was only on the roller coaster single. Except for roller coasters on the roller coaster single. So yeah, I was just getting that mixed up. The New Year, self-titled. Talked about them a lot in the podcast because I had been buying the vinyl, but I sold one of the CDs. And uh, I sold one of my own CDs. It's pretty exciting. <laughs> Somebody bought a Rockets Birds from the Streetland CD from the yesterday. The second album, Departed. I don't think they knew I was in the band. It's from Connecticut, though, so it might be an Aug fan friend. Uh, but anyway, yeah, that was cool. Sold my own CD. I was like, oh, I'm such a rock star. Yeah, oh, yeah. Sold one CD in 2021. Uh, vinyl. Got some vinyl. Not a ton this last two weeks. Um, got the Time Machines vinyl. Uh, coil side project. Very drony coil side project, which was perfectly timed for all this coil throbbing gristle psychic TV book reading I've been doing. Uh, which we'll talk about in the book section. I got the Billie Eilish new album, Happier Than Ever. I ordered it from Billie's online store, so it's the pale yellow version, not to be convinced with the Walmart-exclusive opaque yellow version. Uh, I got Let Into Gold, Low and Slow EP. Let Into Gold is Paul Barker from Ministry's side project. I've been into them forever. I saw them live since I've lived here in Chapel Hill, which was amazing. <laughs> but uh, I realized I didn't have this EP, and when I watched the Wax Tracks movie, I went to the Wax Tracks site, and they had that for sale, along with t-shirts for Lead Into Gold and Palehead, and I bought t-shirts for both of them in the year 2021, and I'm so excited. I've been so into Lead Into Gold and Palehead since high school and I got t-shirts where I would just like very like a happy camper it just cracks me up uh Palehead was the ministry Ian Mackay collaboration Ian Mackay from Fugazi and Minor Threat of course so I got <laughs> I'm just so excited about my Palehead and Lead into Gold t-shirts it made me really happy and they said so many good wax track stickers with the order like I've made one or two wax tracks orders since they got they started back up again a couple years ago but, uh, you know, in my high school years, I ordered from Wax Tracks all the fucking time. So it's fun to be doing it again now and again. Uh, Dolly Parton, Coat of Many Colors. It was the country selection from Vinyl Me Please for the record of the month. So I swapped out for the country one. And we got this Dolly Parton album, which is beautiful and lovely. Also an amazing multicolored pour. Just gorgeous. Uh, Mercury Rev, the In a Funny Way single. Uh, I basically, so I bought, uh, Sisters of Mercy Floodland. <laughs> I found an affordable copy in the United States 
on vinyl, and that seller had two seven-inch singles that I wanted to own, and they were both very cheap. So it was the Mercury Rev one and Bong Water. You don't love me yet. The only Bong Water release I did not already own. So that was pretty exciting. Very into Bong Water. <laughs> and Magnuson and Kramer, what a great band. Two monstrously talented individuals in the same band. Just crazy. I wish I had seen Ann Magnuson's one-man, one-woman show back in the day. I, I really wish I did. It, it came to Boston at the Wang Center, and I didn't go, and I deeply regret it. She's just such a talented, talented woman. Anyway, those are all the vinyl that came in. And then albums, not as long as some weeks. Uh, I finished up clearing out the two investigate playlists, re-listened to a lot of stuff, and then like just kind of fucked around, listened to some old music. You know, but then I got, finally, I like hungered down and I listened to a bunch of new stuff. Nation of Language. Oh my God, they're so good. Nation of Language. Tournament is the name of the album. It's kind of like mellow synth pop, but I love it. Great band, Nation of Language. Whew. Yeah. Strong recommend for me. Been listening to that album over and over and over again. And then my friend, John Whitney, who runs Brainwashed, which is a music website. He has a great podcast and he's very good. Uh, he, I, we've been friends for Jesus, it's the early 90s. I think we met at a KMFDM show in like 92. Uh, anyway, he hit me to the band. One great thing about John is he knows like my specific musical tastes within the underground world. And sometimes he tells me like, you need to listen to this band. And uh, this one was called Karate Guns and Tanning. And they're so good. <laughs> it's, it's a collaboration between two, two women, longtime best friends. They don't live in the same town and they used to, but now they live in different cities. So it's like sort of a through the mail kind of thing. But uh, it's like noisy shoegaze, kind of in the sort of like more rock and roll side of it, like Ringo Death Star or something like that. It's got a good psychedelic angle to it, and it's hard, and I love it. It's called Concrete Beach, and it's a great record. Strong recommend. Uh, so then I listened to a bunch of stuff related to sort of the uh, Genesis Peorage and Cozy Fanny Tootie books I was reading. Uh, I listened to Nico's album Desert Shore, which I had never heard. I thought I had heard all the Nico albums, but I had never heard this album. And um, it was Peter Christofferson from Coil's favorite record, or one of them. And when he died, XTG, the three members of Throbbing Gristle that aren't Genesis Peorage, were working on an album of it. They had been working on it when they were still Throbbing Gristle with Genesis. They did an installation in London where they played for 12 hours. They did various versions of Desert Shore. That exists as a four-CD set, Throbbing Gristle doing the Desert Shore installation. Cozy's book says that the reason they did that is they wanted to do the album, but they knew they could never get Jen in the studio, and he's better live, so they just did a live show to get his vocals, and then they are going to build the whole album around his vocals, which seems to be what they were doing. But then Genesis didn't consent to be on it, blah, 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 blah. So they did it under the moniker XTG. Peter Christofferson was ringleading it, but he died. And then Kristen Cozy got it over the finish line after he passed uh, with uh, most of the guest vocalists that Peter Christofferson had envisioned, including Blixa Bargild, Anohi, uh, Sasha Gray, Gaspar Noir. No, Gaspar. <laughs> Gaspar Noe. I don't know. How, how do you pronounce his last name? Anyway, uh, it's beautiful. It's a cover of the whole album, slightly out of order, but... Uh, I, it's, it's just amazing. I never listened to like the the XTG stuff. I I saw Thriving Gristle on the reunion and I was mostly unimpressed. I could tell they were not having a good time. <laughs> and I just kind of forgot and I, I unfairly wrote off the late period XTG albums, but they are very good. Uh, Desert Shore and the, the Final Report, I listened to that as well and I was very impressed. So good job, Chris Cozy and Peter Christofferson. On those, uh, and then Chris and Cozy 
the other two members of Throbbing Gristle, besides Genesis and Peter Christopherson, had a band called Chris and Cozy, and then they changed their name to Carter Tootie, their last names, and then they did a collaboration with somebody from Factory Floor whose last name is Void. I don't know much about Factory Floor, but their collaboration was called Carter Tootie Void, and I listened to that album. It's called Triumvirate, and it's pretty cool. It's just like sort of dark wave electronica. It's not really my thing, but it was solid. Uh, I think that's it for... <laughs> My my delve into late period uh, throbbing gristle stuff. New Candies, Vivid. This may have also been a John Whitney recommendation, but it's a great record. I don't remember why I was listening to New Candies, Vivid, but it's also like sort of psychedelic, shoegazy, rock and roll. Great record. Strong recommend. Uh, Godflesh. <laughs> listening to a lot of Justin Broderick. Uh, Godflesh has a new album out. It's called New Flesh in Dub Volume 1, which is obviously a dub remix record. And it was awesome. It sounds a lot like Slave State back in the day of my favorite Godflesh era. So that was really great. Also listened to Jezu Heartache, another Justin Broderick band, Jezu. And he uh, remastered Deluxe, Deluxe, a album called Heartache by Jezu. I try to keep up with Justin Broderick and listen and buy everything, but there's so much I do not own at all. And I miss albums. So Heartache, I don't know when it came out. This is a reissue. And I don't think I ever listened to it the first time around. I have like five Jay-Z records and I don't even know their names. <laughs> so I'm not sure. Maybe I had listened to it before. Uh, man on Man, self-titled album, Man on Man. This is one of the dudes that used to be in Faith No More and a bunch of other bands. He's very, very gay and he started a band with his boyfriend and it's a whole album that sounds like the Roadrunners making an album about how awesome it is to be gay. I mean, there's really one song in there called It's So Fun to Be Gay. It's a great record, though, and I really love it, and it's awesome, and it's like sounds like Roadrunner. <laughs> it's, it's just great. I, I'm, I've listened to it like four times. Fantastic record. Uh, and then I listened to two albums from two different guys that have left the Brian Jonestown Massacre through the years. I rewatched Dig, which we'll talk about in a bit. Uh, but there were two other main guys in the band besides, well, there were three, but two of them besides Anson Newcomb, the main guy, were uh, Matt Hollywood and Joel Guion. So I listened to two, each of their albums that's on Spotify, Matt Hollywood and the Bad Feelings, self-titled album, and Joel Guion's self-titled album. And they're both really good. They're like both less crazy versions of the Brian Jonestown Massacre. I really enjoyed them both. Solid records. I can get behind them. Uh, Matt Hollywood's got another band called Rebel Drones, not on Spotify, but they're on YouTube. So I have tabs open, but I haven't listened to those yet. Uh, and then just this morning, I listened to <laughs> Lingua Ignota. I saw a comment from my friend Gordon Withers on another friend of mine's Facebook post, and he said that this album is terrifying and amazing, and I had never heard of Lingua Ignota, so I just threw it on, and oh my God. What a crazy record. Oh my God. I'm not Catholic. I should preface this by saying <laughs> I'm not a religious person and I am not fascinated with religious iconography or feelings. This album is very, very fascinated with these things. And I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm guessing, but I would hazard a guess that the woman grew up uh, Catholic. But I, I put all that aside. It is terrifying. It is majestic. It is noise. It is operatic. It is gospel. It is fucking crazy it's just i've never heard anything like it maybe diamanda gallas meets like speaking in tongues pentecostal ministers <laughs> i mean i've seen diamanda like three times live so i think that's probably the closest analog would be a diamanda gallas but uh yeah what an intense record 
And then Valerie June, The Moon and Stars, Prescriptions for Dreamers. Just listened to that right before I started this podcast, and it was lovely. Mellow, countryish, very atmospheric, anthemic, sparse, beautiful, recommended. And I think my friend's here, so I'm going to go say hi. Dun, 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 It's the next day. Wow, yeah, it's been a while. Hey, how's it going? I had a good time hanging out with Alice in the backyard for a couple hours yesterday. Then I had an hour-long phone call with my old friend Ben Palmer. That was pretty cool. And then we did dinner, and then I watched some YouTube videos, and then we brought Jane over to Grammys. Then we went on a walk, and then we watched some stuff. Then I went to bed, or I read my, yeah, I went to bed and read my book for a while, and got up, and there's no Jane here this morning. It's nine. 55 a.m. now. I've had breakfast. I've written my morning post. I've done my 750 words. It's very productive. It's lovely. How are you guys? How you been since yesterday? <laughs> I've never, I don't think I've ever split a podcast. Mid-podcast is weird. I feel renewed. I want to start over from the beginning and babble for another 40 minutes instead of going right into the television stuff. Also, that Jeopardy theme made me realize that I should mention to you guys that that whole Jeopardy host search thing was total bullshit and LeVar Burton should, of course, be the Jeopardy host. So, you know, I just want you to know I am on that bandwagon. Being, of course, a child of the 80s and watching Star Trek The Next Generation when I was a kid, LeVar Burton was awesome. And uh, I even had to watch Roots as a kid, so, you know, I, I'm, I'm deep with the LeVar Burton. Too young or too old for Reading Rainbow, though. Never saw him on Reading Rainbow. Don't really know much about Reading Rainbow. Just know that LeVar Burton was on it. He came to a barbarian group party at the Mohawk in Austin once. That was pretty cool. Anyway, where were we? We had just finished the music section of this podcast, I believe, right? Yes, 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 we had. So that moves us to the television section of this podcast. Uh, last night, we watched an episode of Brickmasters, the Lego reality show with Will Arnett as the host. That guy is a very funny host, I gotta say. He's very good at it. Uh, and, you know, if you are a... I don't know why you still watch the show. I'm not even that into Legos anymore. I don't buy them anymore. I mean, I still kind of flip through the catalog and academically keep a track of the industry. <laughs> Sometimes I watch Jane Brick, still a YouTuber about Legos, but not much. I don't really, I don't really do much. But we watched this show, and uh, it's pretty good. Uh, the second season is very different from the first season. The first season was all about these big creative builds. This season, they've introduced like fire and wind and explosions, and I don't think they've done water yet. I bet that's next. <laughs> but but uh, it's enjoyable. Uh, I liked the contestants last season better too, but. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if we'll keep watching this forever, but we are watching it now. Uh, and then last night I watched the first episode of What If, the new Marvel show on Disney+. Plus. Disney Plus now has 176 million subscribers, which is pretty fucking insane. But, uh, you know, they're smart. They keep you hooked. They dole out these sort of like 
if you're a fanboy, need to watch shows with only like a month, a month or less in between them. And it's really been happening since the Mandalorian, right? Like even before that, I think I can't remember what was before that, but really it's like Mandalorian then WandaVision then Loki, uh, no WandaVision then Falcon, the winter soldier, which was not that good. Then Loki. And now this Marvel's what if, which was, should tie us over pretty close to the, uh, I think Hawkeye would happen then. And then I think the, the season three of the Mandalorian, the book of Boba Fett will happen. So, you know, like a lot of streaming services, just everything's there. There's not a lot of new stuff or there is new stuff, but it's not like all of the same genre, but like Disney's doing very well, just dripping out one season of it at a time of all of these shows to keep you hooked and keep you paying your monthly fees. So it's working. Uh, and I don't, I don't know, man, but what if didn't really do it for me, which is a little, you know, this, the whole conceit is like, it's a bunch of alternate universes. And I just, I'm not into this alternate universe thing very much because my whole shtick is I'm into world building. That's why I like sci-fi is for the world building. And then once they, they cheat, like I'm already like Marvel's already like, you know, uh, in the danger zone with me <laughs> because they have, bait and switched me on universe extensions and then retconned them I retconned them out of the MCU already many times including uh Agents of Shield and Agent Carter and Daredevil and Jessica Jones although I have heard a rumor that those some of those characters are coming back on Disney Plus so that'll be interesting but uh you know so this whole conceit of this what if series also it's animated so Emma's not really into it she doesn't like <laughs> animation uh, adult animation. She likes kid animation, but uh, the whole conceit is that Jeffrey Wright, Bernard from Westworld, <laughs> Felix from James Bond. I like Jeffrey Wright. I think he's really cool. <laughs> so I'll probably keep watching it just for that, but he's playing the watcher, a supernatural being that just, I guess gets his jollies off of by watching like alternate dimensions. <laughs> I, I, I don't know what that is. So it's a lot of like, oh, things could have been different. It's sliding door shit, right? So like, you know, this one is like, what if the attack in Captain America when Steve was about to get the serum, the super soldier serum went slightly differently so that Steve got shot and he couldn't become the super soldier. So Peggy Carter had to become the super soldier. And we got Captain Carter instead uh which okay that was fine i mean it was kind of interesting it's interesting what they're doing like they're doing some shot for shot things with the other shows you know and they have a lot of the same actors but not all it's like star wars some of them are like yeah i'll do it because they're either like not working and they want money or they're just cool people or they're really into it you know like sebastian stands in this one and and peggy carter what's her name uh, Haley Atwell, she's doing her voice, but then other people are like, they just got. There's this guy Matthew Wood, <laughs> he's awesome. He does this. He's been doing this for years in the Star Wars universe and in, in the cartoons. He just does all the voices of like people that don't show up. <laughs> so he's doing that in this one, and then you know the guy that does Red Skull is no longer Hugo Weaving, but they recast him in in uh, Avengers: Infinity War and Endgame, so that at least kind of works. That one's more like uh, Boba Fett, where they recast to that guy, and then they used him through all the prequels, and then they used him in the cartoons. Wow, yeah, this is going deep on nerdy cartoons. <laughs> anyway, I mean, I was kind of like, okay, yeah, things would be different if Peggy Carter was Captain Britannia, or Captain Carter, they're calling her. 
But I, I, and then they're like trying to tease that it's going to have something to do with the regular MCU. But I'm like, yeah, you fool me once, fool me twice. Shame on me. Shame on me. Uh, unlike W's version. Anyway, um, and that might eventually come out to be the case, right? That like this what if show mattered in some way. But I'm like, fucking none of your shows have mattered to the movies yet. I guess now, finally, uh, Elaine, <laughs> Julie Louise Dreyfus. She has transcended and gone from TV show Falcon and the Winter Soldier to movie Black Widow. So maybe now, maybe they are starting to make amends for their long, dreadful history of TV show erasure in the MCU. But I'm doubly dubious that it's going to actually get fixed from a cartoon. And I'm like, I guess I'll watch it. But Emma was like, I don't need to watch this. You can watch it without me. So I will be watching it without her. Which is fine, because it's a cartoon, so I can watch it when I'm watching Jane or something. But um, not the most suspicious start, I guess. Uh, and on that note of the not the most suspicious start of Disney animated spinoff series, I am still watching The Bad Batch, the latest Star Wars animated TV show. These things are like 23 minutes long, you know? I just watch them when I'm watching Jane sometimes. It's not like a big commitment to watch these things. I, I gotta feel like I have to defend myself. But uh, I kind of have been bad-mouthing The Bad Batch here on this podcast for some time. But it's getting good. I'm into it now. Uh, there's only one more episode. Oh, wow. It actually came out. It comes out today. Oh, cool. I'll watch it tonight. Um, there's only one more episode in the season, but it got a lot better. At the beginning, it was so low stakes. It was like, yes, this is canon, and yes, it's in the universe, and yes, I guess I wanted to know where the Rancor monster came from in uh, Return of the Jedi, but it just felt like it was like going to be the same sort of thing I hate about the MCU which is that these spin-off shows don't have real stakes in the larger universe. And that bothers me a lot because especially because Star Wars historically, uh, Clone Wars and Star Wars Rebels very much had stakes, real stakes that reverberated through the films at least a little bit. And, uh, but they, you know, they dealt with very major plot points between the films that happened a lot less with that other Star Wars the first one that made under the Disney auspices, I was not super impressed with it. I can't even remember what it was called. It's like takes place on some water base with like an acrobatic flying team. I don't know. I watched like five episodes. I was like, nothing is happening here. I can't. I can't. I can't bring, be moved to care about this. Maybe it's changed because this one has in fact changed, and now the stakes are real, and we're learning a whole bunch of interesting stuff about the Star Wars universe, and like I'm really into it now, and. It's gotten a lot better, so I feel like I need to tell you that because I have been bad-mouthing Star Wars, The Bad Batch. I know that so many of you out there listening to this podcast are very concerned about the animated series, <laughs> Star Wars World. But for those of you that are and that have not started The Bad Batch yet, it, stick with it. It's worth it. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. And then finally, we have still been watching Mythbusters, a little-known fact Mythbusters does not have season numbers. There were no seasons. Uh, so now they do seasons by the year. Mythbusters started in 2013. That's a lie. Mythbusters started in 2003. Uh, it ran for 14 seasons, making it one of the longest-running non-news, non-soap opera shows out there, uh, which is really quite a remarkable accomplishment. 
Uh, we are on season, I think 2008 now, maybe nine now. I think we just got to nine. So, you know, season six or something like that. We're not quite halfway done. It's a great show, man. It's really, it really hits the spot. You're, you're like, it's educational. It's entertaining. You can drop in, you can drop out. You can care about the build. You can care about the outcome. You can just want to see the big explosion. Uh, the teams, the cast are very... I really, they, they, they captured something special with that group of people, you know? They all just work together really well. The build team, and of course, Adam and Jamie. It's just very well done. Uh, we enjoy it a lot. So, that's about it for TV. I did watch a bunch of movies this week. I've been really into documentaries. Um, well, not a documentary, but I did watch the new Suicide Squad. Uh, Emma watched it too. I sort of gave her a choice. I was like, look, here's the positive case for the new Suicide Squad movie, The Suicide Squad. It's a James Gunn movie. It was the movie he made during his time in the wilderness from Disney when they fired him after Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 before they hired him back for Volume 3. Uh, it's getting good reviews. You like Margot Robbie. You did even go like uh, the Harley Quinn movie was the last movie we saw in the theater before the pandemic, which is kind of crazy. So, you know, it's, it's, there was a lot going for it and she's uh, she consented to watch it and it was fun. It was good. It was, I mean, you know, Suicide Squad's a dumb conceit and a lot of the characters are dumb, but they totally worked with that and they made like a pretty funny movie and it was very clever in a lot of ways. There's some imaginative stuff. Uh, we were entertained. Are you not entertained? Yes, I was entertained. So yeah, not bad. Uh, but on the documentary front, yeah, I think I've watched four documentaries in the last two weeks. All music, mostly. Uh, Industrial Accident, the story of Wax Tracks Records. Um, turned out to be really good. Came out a couple of years ago. I heard about it when it came out. Wax Tracks uh, is obviously a hugely influential record label, primarily for the industrial dance genre, but, you know, expanding, expanding so many different types of music, if you really think about it. Punk. Gay, disco, ambient, experimental, electronica, dance. Uh, it's just crazy how much stuff they put out of so much different types. And, the, uh, you know, like they had such a profound influence in my childhood. Like I would mail order from this record label. And, uh, you know, all those early, uh, my life with the Thrill Kill Cult, early ministry, KMFDM. Um, yeah, it was just pale head. I'm wearing my pale head shirt today. Very exciting. And, uh, but you know, I never really knew much about them because it was pre-internet time and I lived in Alaska and you couldn't really learn that much about these people. So I didn't know anything about the guys that founded it. I didn't know about Wax Track starting in Denver as a record store. I knew they had a record store in Chicago and then the label. I didn't know anything about them. That passing of AIDS. Like, uh, I learned a lot and, you know, I knew that his daughter, one of the, one of the founder's daughters was running the label now, but I, yeah, it was a super well done documentary. A lot of people in it, you know, I did like those guys may book the first Bauhaus show in Chicago. So David J from Bauhaus and 11 Rockets is in the documentary. Chris and Cozy are in the documentary, coincidentally, you know, because he's been just been reading her autobiography. So that was weird. Um, uh, a lot of what's his name, Jello Biafra from the Dead Milkman was in the, bio, the documentary because he's on Wax Tracks via Lard, his collaboration project with Ministry. It's very good, very good. Um, very well done. And it was directed by Julia Nash, the current woman who runs Wax Tracks, the daughter of Jim Nash, one of the two founders of the, of the label. So that was great. Uh, strong recommend. Good documentary. And then I watched, uh, what did I watch next? Uh, 
did I watch that next? Did that next? No, I watched that next. Respectable, the Mary Millington story. So I mentioned this up in both of these up in the uh, Plex section. So Mary Millington was a pornographic actress that sort of went mainstream in England in the 70s and 80s. Uh, so, you know, not the swing in 60s. She was later. She was in the prudish period. And I learned about her from the, the Cozy Fanny Tootie biography, autobiography I've been reading, but it was just in passing. And, um, you know, she... This is the thing I've noticed in when you're reading autobiographies. They'll be talking about someone and they'll spend a significant amount of time talking about this person. And you're like, I get the strong feeling this is somebody of note, but I've never heard of them. And then, you know, we might go do some research on that person and be like, oh, okay, I get why they're spending so much time talking about this person. Other times, you know perfectly well who the person is and you're very excited and you're reading this book and you're like, oh my God, it's so amazing. I'm reading this bio autobiography or this biography and everybody in it, they all are so successful and so many people all hung out, blah, 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 blah. But sometimes you don't know who they are and you kind of gloss over it. And you might not even realize like that person was really well known. And so for me, that was the case with Mary Millington. She shows up in the autobiography two or three times and the first two times she just mentioned and she's, you know, in conjunction with this other guy that's turned out to be pretty famous, this famous British pornographer. And uh, Cozy knew them, and she was dating, like, the same guy as Mary Millington was. And I didn't really pay attention to any of it because I was like, Cozy, experimental music. She, had a, she was also an artist, and she was using pornography as an art. I'm completely uninterested in the characters of the art part of her career or the pornography part of her career. It's just that she did it, right? But it turns out that Mary Millington, and the, the third time she mentions her in the book, she like says something that caught my ear and made me realize this woman might be of note. So I Googled her and I looked her up and I was like, wow, this seems pretty interesting. And she was hugely famous. She was in this movie called Come Play With Me that was the second longest running film in English history. It ran for nearly 10 years. It was one of those sexual rom-com caper movies. And, uh, you know, she had a fan club with over a million paying members in it. She started her own like chain of sex shops that was continually raided by the police because she was pushing the boundaries of what was illegal because pornography was mainly illegal in the UK and she eventually committed suicide after being harassed by the police both for that as well as her kleptomania habit. It's just crazy. Like, she, this movie is very interesting. And, you know, I just learned about this one from a passing sentence in this biography. But, uh, yeah, Mary Millington, uh, respectable, the Mary Millington story. It's, it's in my plex. It's kind of hard to find. I had to grab it off the, uh, you know the internets there is an $80 box set on blu-ray box set on amazon that includes the mary millington story as well as come play with me and several other of her movies I, i'm kind of thinking about buying it i don't know we shall see we shall see uh and then i might rewatch dig which is the 2005 documentary about the brian jonestown massacre and the dandy warhols which of course i was super into both of those bands uh, in the early days and I watched that do that documentary in the theater when it came out and uh, you know so I, but I hadn't thought about any of that in ages Dandy Warhols came through Chapel Hill since I lived here and I went to see him and I thought about it all then a little bit but like you know I haven't really thought about them I, I still buy every Brian Jonestown record massacre record I think they're very good still but I haven't really thought about the whole scene in years and you know it was interesting to rewatch that movie as a 49 year old man versus uh, well 2005 that would have been 16 years ago so you know early 30s which was already a little too old for that whole thing. <laughs> But, uh, you know, like Anton's antics were annoying then, but they're even more annoying now. And I just feel so bad for all these people. Uh, I'm really compelled by Joel in the band. I forgot how charismatic and interesting that guy was. And uh, so I've been, you know, like I said, listening to the solo albums by Joel and Matt and 
And uh, yeah, it was good. It was good to watch it again. It really took me back to a certain time and place. I also clarified a whole thing because in my mind, you know, I've been obsessed with uh, Robert LaVon Bean from the Black Rebel Motorcycle Club and specifically his tribute to his father, Michael Bean, the lead singer of The Call and the album Robert LaVon Bean and The Call, and the tribute to Michael LaVon Bean. I, you know, I go on and on and on about The Call and Robert LaVon Bean. In my head, he was the member of the Black Rebel Motorcycle Club that was in the Brian Jonestown Massacre, but that's not actually the case. It was the other guy. So I, I'm glad I clarified all that in my head. I had misremembered that. So cleared that up. That was good. Uh, no HD copies of Dig anywhere, which is kind of a shame. So I have a SD copy up in Plex, but it was fine. You don't really mind. I mean, a lot of the, the footage is grainy documentary, sort of like... Uh, early mini DV cam type stuff like TRV 900s by Sony. <laughs> I was really into mini DV back then. So it doesn't really matter what the resolution's fine. It wouldn't have been, it wouldn't be that much better in HD, which is perhaps one of the reasons that Andy, the director hasn't re-released it. Uh, I met her much later on another film of hers. We live in public. Um, went to the release party and kind of knew that guy. So that was pretty cool. But you know, that was way later. Told her I love dig cause it's a great film. It's a classic. And then I also, after that, oh well, yeah, oh yeah, so I've been watching Summer of Soul. I haven't actually finished it yet. Um, I have like 15 minutes left of it. The Questlove movie about the 1969 Harlem Cultural Festival. Uh, it's fantastic, and I love it. <laughs> it's a great film, and everybody was right. Uh, and the live footage is just stunning, and uh, the whole thing is just very, very good. It's a, definitely a nice sort of counterbalance to Woodstock, which also happened in 1969. So I strongly recommend that film. I'll finish it up tonight, probably. Um, but yeah, it was great as well. Books. Let's see. So since the last time I talked to you, I can't remember if I... Let's check my notes here. Okay, yes. So since I last talked to you, I finished Genesis P. Origins autobiography, non-binary Genesis P. Origins, of course. One of the one of the members of Throbbing Gristle, and then the main impetus behind Psychic TV, also an artist. Uh, he, yeah, and so you know, I did not. Uh, the book was fine. <laughs> How do I phrase all this? I, I, I don't know where to start. I've been really obsessing over this whole thing for weeks now, but basically, uh, let's start at the beginning. I was really into Psychic TV around, I learned about them in sort of the infinite beat period, right? Because of Wax Tracks Records, uh, I was simultaneously into what I now realize were all the different members of Throbbing Gristle's solo acts because of Wax Tracks Records. And I really didn't put this all together until I was watching the Wax Tracks documentary, but Chris and Cozy were on Wax Tracks Records, Coil was on Wax Tracks Records, and Psychic TV were on Wax Tracks Records. So 1992, I saw, I can't, you know, I can't get the years exactly right, but across 91 and 92, 90 to 92, let's say, I saw Psychic TV do the Infinite Beat Tour, which was just astonishing dance music thing. And then I think around 91, I saw a two-night performance of Genesis P. Orge in the Temple of Psychic Youth at PTV3 which would be him, Paula, and uh, Zev do a two-night performance at Mass Art. And one night was a sermon. He spoke from a pulpit. And the second night was a ritual. And I watched the guy get his scrotum pierced on stage while Paula filmed it all. And there was a bunch of weird things going on, right? It was just insane. And I was very young. And it was like seared into my memory to this day. 
But I didn't know anything about any of like the rest of it. I didn't know even then about Thriving Gristle. I very from there. That's when I started learning about it, and I learned about Thriving Gristle, kind of the early '90s, and uh, I never learned really at that time about Comb Transmissions, which was his artist collective before that. But by learning about Thriving Gristle, I put it all together with Coil and Chris and Cozy and all that. So I've known about it generally for a long time. Got really into Thriving Gristle across the early '90s. Very into Coil. Uh, less so about Psychic TV. Uh, I kept buying the records for a while, and then I stopped, and I didn't really pay attention to what happened to Genesis for well over a decade. Um, I was still buying every Coil record, but my musical taste kind of changed. Coil had made it into my routine habits of bands that I would buy every record from. Thank God those things are worth a mint. Very hard to find now, but Genesis kind of fell off the radar for me. Uh, I hear about him here and there, and then in, I'm going to say 2006, me and my girlfriend and a few other friends went to Mass Mocha to see Yola Tango play, and there was an exhibit there, and it, there was an exhibit by Genesis, and his new wife, Lady Jane, and it was very good, and I thought, oh, that's really good, and so I kind of did a little catching up on it, and then not long after that, uh, some friends of mine started putting his records out and I, so it sort of re-entered my consciousness in the, you know, 2000, late 2000s, early 2010s. Uh, and then right before we left Brooklyn for the last two years, we were there at Christmas, uh, psychic TV would play the Brooklyn bazaar, the night bazaar around between Christmas and new years. And I went to those shows for two years and they were just great. And it was more like a psych rock thing is kind of like very much influenced by his Hawkwind. He used to be friends with Hawkwind. I think he was even briefly in Hawkwind, although it's not in the biography. I don't know. I got to research that, but uh, you know, and he would, they would do like a really great cover of jump into the fire by Harry Nilsson. And it was just like, kind of like a, like a space rock thing. And I was really into that. Um, but now, so now I'm reading this autobiography and it's like clearing up a lot of what I didn't know about the nineties. And, you know, he'd been hounded out of, I heard a little bit about this. Like he was hounded out of England because of like reports of child abuse and stuff and sexual deviancy because of the temple of psychic youth, which I always just thought was stupid. I always thought that cult was stupid. I just knew it was dumb even when I was young. Um, and then, you know, he was in Pakistan for a while or somewhere, uh, Kathmandu, I can't remember. And then he was in California, which I knew he was in California, and I had forgotten he was in the in Dig. But uh, and then I vaguely knew about the whole incident where he like was gravely injured in the fire at Rick Rubin's house while he was helping Love and Rockets on the Sweet FA album. Uh, so you know, I was reading all of this, but really, re I gotta say, reading this book, I was just like, this guy sounds kind of like a dick. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I was like, uh, you know, I, I mentioned this several months ago, the concept of imminent critique, right? Like, like uh, I learned about this from the, the Joan Robinson books. The, the concept of critiquing the interior logic of a work of art or a piece of writing based only on its own merits and, lo and logical ecosystem, not comparing it to other things, right? So I'm very fascinated with this. And like, I read this book in good faith, but just reading this book within the book and what it says you're like that's problematic <laughs> like not not going into he said she said or looking at it against other things or so so and so said this or like blah 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 or you're got to be this a bad person to do this i'm just like well within the book you're very like kind of like hypocritical and like you're not very thoughtful and there's like big red flags and so yeah anyway and then i discovered that cozy fanny tutti uh, who was his girlfriend at the early Throbbing Gristle period because she was one of the Coombe Transmissions 
Collective Heart members. I learned that she had an autobiography, so I decided to read that next. So I finished that in the last two weeks as well. It's called Art, Sex, Music by Cozy Fanny Tootie. Uh, and, <laughs> and so, it, you know, it definitely confirmed some of my suspicions. I was like, okay, yeah, this guy was kind of abusive in his relationship. And the first half of the book in the Throbbing Gristle period was very revelatory in that sense. And it like, clarified, like, yeah, he was really... But, you know, what does that tell you? He was a bad person in the 1970s when he was young. Okay, well, cool. I mean, a guy, you know, he's, they're, they're, he's past now. He's, you know. But um, I was like, doesn't mean he was, like, lame forever and blah, blah, blah. But he was, like, mildly abusive to her, which was definitely bad. Uh, and then, you know, he disappears because the band breaks up and he disappears for a long time. And then she has this very interesting book about, like, I didn't realize how interesting her life was post, uh, you know, I knew, I knew all about Chris and Cozy and Carter 2D, their other act. And, but, uh, you know, the, I didn't realize how much of the art stuff kept going on. I didn't, it just, it was interesting still. The book was interesting, you know, and then Throbbing Gristle reunites in the late, in 2000s. Uh, that's the other reason I started paying attention to Genesis again. I went to some of the Throbbing Gristle reunion shows. And, uh, you know, she talks a lot about how hard he was to work with in that period. Uh, but then I was like, it was hard because I was like, well, this conforms with like the earlier Genesis part where like he was, you know, abusive and an asshole. But like in the second part, I find myself inexplicably still being more sympathetic to Genesis. She was like, he's so responsible and he couldn't do this. And he kept backing out of shows. But like she would even say like the dude was broke. He had health problems. His wife had health problems. Like. You know, I mean, like, I don't know. It's just awkward. It's like you chose to reunite with this guy in this band again. That's who he is, and he's got these problems. I mean, you know, yeah, of course he has his own manager. He has other bands. And, you know, it was weird. She was like, we got our manager to be Throbbing Gristle's manager. So she doesn't have this problem, but he does because he's got another band. He's got another manager. And so, I don't know. I was just like kind of suddenly found myself sympathetic for him again towards the end. But really, all of it, all it really served to do is make me become even more obsessed with Peter Christofferson, the fourth person in this saga, who was the fourth member of Throbbing Gristle who briefly after that went on to join Genesis and Coil, but left pretty rapidly to start uh, in Psycho TV, but left pretty rapidly to start a band called Coil with uh, John Balance. And um, Peter Christofferson is amazing, and there needs to be a biography about this man. He was amazing before any of this happened. Before any of this happened, he was the young partner at Hypnosis, the legendary graphic design firm, and he designed the cover to Wish You Were Here by Pink Floyd. He was an amazing filmmaker before he joined Throbbing Gristle, right? Like, an amazing photographer through his entire time in Throbbing Gristle and to Coil into into Psyche TV and a coil. He was a acclaimed renowned video director doing videos for huge acts and like a long fruitful collaboration with Trent Reznor and nine inch nails. And, you know, I mean, the man was like an artist in every medium and he was just amazing. And, and, uh, <laughs> you know, so one effect of all this is like, you know, I learned all about Dex TG and the final report and desert chore. And I mentioned all that in the music section, but, um, I just profoundly wish that there was a biography about Peter Christofferson. Uh, we have a couple of mutual friends and I was talking to one of them and he's like, yeah, the guy, you know, he led like a pretty fractured life. A lot of people didn't know about each other and there's a lot of stuff that shouldn't be public. And I was like, well, just write it down. You know, even if it doesn't come to light for 20 years, this man is like a, he is an artist of the highest caliber across decades from the sixties to the 2020, 2010s, you know, like 40 years, 40 or 50 years of avant-garde art from Pink Floyd to Nine Inch Nails. Who else can claim that? You know, <laughs> it's insane. Uh, anyway, so I got through all that. I've got it out of my system now. <laughs> it's been two, two, three weeks back in the world of 
all these bands that I was like really into like 20 years ago. It's been intense, but we've moved on. Uh, my friend Noah Breyer recommended a book to me. It's called This is How They Tell Me the World Ends, The Cyber Weapons Arm Race by Nicole Perloth, who is the cyber war infosec reporter for the New York Times or was. I don't know if she still is. Uh, and I'm about halfway through it, and it's super intense, and the first half is phenomenal. It's a history of zero-day exploits and the market and the world of sort of offensive hacking, and it's pretty terrifying. And then it transitions into part two with uh, Stuxnet and the United States' attack on Iranian centrifuges, United States and Israel's attack on Iranian centrifuges. Uh, and now we're in the world of, right now I'm reading an account of Chinese hacking Google, which I had read about it in the Google book, but it, now we're getting more insider account on the whole thing. It's very good. I'm very into this book. It's terrifying. Uh, yeah, the world is not safe, man. <laughs> Make sure you're in a good place mentally before you tackle that book. We'll talk more about that book next week, though, next episode, though, because I am not done yet. That's it for this week. One of the longest episodes yet. Hour 12. Wow. Thank you for listening. Forgive my two-partedness. I hope you guys are doing well. Drop me a line. Let me know how you're doing. And I will talk to you guys in two weeks. Have a lovely weekend.